0: Hello, once again, everybody, and welcome to another episode of everybody's favorite Phillies Podcast in a landscape where you just don't have that many options. Phillies Therapy. My name is Paul Boyer. Joined as always by the Athletic Philadelphia is Matt Gelb, who is enjoying time at home, not having to go on road trips for the moment, getting to see another bad team in the Washington Nationals this week before heading back out to the picturesque confines of Bush Stadium 3 in St. Louis, and then everybody's favorite upcoming series in Toronto next week, but we can talk a little bit more about that later. Matt, hi, how are you?
1: Bigger Paul Phillies get to eighty one games this week, the halfway point. The game is the halfway point. It's they
0: will be above five hundred.
1: They will you be know, above five hundred.
0: It, it's funny. I I was looking back a couple of times through how they've done in recent years around this mark, and I forget that the twenty nineteen team was was a little bit above water, but um, it still feels like it's been a lot longer than that. That at the halfway point of the season, it's been decent I don't know I'm just I'm so stuck in this well it's because
1: at the the halfway point they've always they've been behind right I mean like maybe they've been over 500 but they haven't necessarily been you know like in a divisional race I guess in 19 they were probably near the top of the division yeah like they've had some surges
0: where they get more competitive and then you know briefly reclaim the top spot you know once in a blue moon it something feels a little different even despite the deficit this year and and i don't mean the division you know seven and a half games is still um it's still a while away or maybe it's eight now um eight. yeah it's eight now it that that's still a long way away and i think the the Mets and Braves are really the only ones who are, who are I, the division I love right now
1: i love watching Mets fans like freak out <laughs> right like you knew it
0: wasn't gonna stay this huge pillow forever but, even if the but Phillies like were gonna be the ones that-
1: they're they were the first NL team to get to 50 wins. They haven't had their two best pitchers and, and arguably McGill, maybe their third best pitcher, at least at the beginning of the season for, oh, like for sure. months now. And it's like, sure. the, I think the Mets are going to be, I think the Mets are, are going to win the division. No, like, the Mets like, are a good. I, the Mets are a good yeah. team. I the mean, <laughs>
0: I, I like watching Mets fans squirm as much as the next Phillies fan, but yeah, the Mets are fine. We we don't need to, we don't need to talk too much about them. Um, But I guess speaking of Mets and speaking of old Mets, Uh, the most recent bright spot in this, in this stretch of baseball, where I think everybody could be forgiven if they were a little wary coming off that three game losing streak, um, in the series finale against Washington. And then in that, that brief sweep against Texas, where you think, oh no, here comes another spiral back down to 500. They were two games above, and then they've rattled off six wins in their next 10. So they fended that off. Great. Kudos to you guys. Um, but most recently on, uh, Sunday night baseball. Ace Zach Wheeler looked great, man. And I know we spent a lot of time at the beginning of this season wondering if something was up. Was he going to ramp up in time? He missed spring training. So was he going to just have a weird year all year? The start of the season was not great, et cetera, et cetera. And he's just been on fire again, but he's been doing it differently than he has the past couple of years. And that's got you encouraged. Can you can you expand on that a little bit?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's an it's an interesting time to just take stock, take a step back and look at Wheeler. You know, you're essentially you're halfway through the season, which means that you're halfway through his contract, that five-year, $118 million mm-hmm. deal. And uh, it looks like a, a pretty damn good deal at this point. And I know, you're, you know, there's still halfway to go. But I, I think what's really interesting about Wheeler is that we knew early on in the season, right, this year that, you know he wasn't he wasn't uh you know peak wheeler he wasn't stretched right. out he really hadn't had enough time I mean the spring was odd you know you can debate their decision to have him basically have spring training in the major leagues in April a little weird, probably not the best idea but whatever uh, and, and I think what I've been wondering in the back of my mind is whether you know he would get back to where he was last year in terms of velocity mm-hmm. and and he hasn't. No. he really hasn't. I mean, Sunday night, he finally flashed a little bit. He, he reached back and, 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 and got an extra little juice when he needed it. Uh, especially early in that game against the Cardinals, you could tell he was a little juiced up. And, and I think, uh, what we saw was a guy that maybe you'll see more in the second half as he kind of rounds into shape a little more, but Mm. Last year, like this was an idea that I kind of had in my back pocket for a while. And I talked to Wheeler about it maybe two weeks ago. And he kind of laughed because he he knew what was going on too. I mean, last year, if you just take pitches at 98.0 miles per hour, tracked by StatCast, Mm -hmm. Wheeler threw 357 of them last year, 11%. So one more than one out of every 10 of pitches he threw was 98 or harder. That's a whole bunch. And this year he's at thirteen, and eight of those were in the start Sunday night. He had six pitches at ninety eight or harder entering Sunday night. And I
0: realized it was that low.
1: Yeah, and so like he he hasn't had the kind of velocity that he had last year uh, when he honestly should have won Cy Young, but he is still putting up the kind of numbers. Arguably better, maybe maybe better than last year. Like you I don't could know. say it's, that, yeah, yeah. Arguably better than last year. Uh, you know, maybe not because the run scoring environment has changed. So, I don't know. Maybe last year's performance is more valuable. I, I don't know. You could debate that too. Mm-hmm. But he is doing more with less. And, and, and <laughs> I was like, I thought I was onto something. And I go to him and I talk to him, and he's like, honestly, he's like, I'm doing the same thing he's like, it's just not coming out as hard. And and he kind of huh. laughed about it because it sounds crazy, but he's like, look, it is, there are some differences. He's like, I can't sneak up on guys like I did last year. Like I can't just go blow guys away up in the zone all the time. Like uh-huh. I did last year. You know, he had 40 strikeouts on 98 mile an hour pitches or harder. And he's only got two this year. Like that, that's, that's a big number. Uh, that's a big loss right there. His strikeouts are are still about where they were last year. I'm going to guess, though, by the end of the year, they're they're probably his rate is probably lower. Uh, I think what has impressed me about Wheeler is that he's just found different ways. And it was like this in 2020, right? He wasn't really a strikeout pitcher. He was pitching to contact. He's getting ground balls. Last year, he's more of a strikeout pitcher. Uh, reached back and got it whenever he wanted. Sunday night, you saw the two versions of Wheeler. Like early on, he was chasing strikeouts. He had big velocity, bigger velocity he's had all year. And then, you know, halfway through the game, he notices, you know, he knows his pitch count. The Cardinals are fouling off a ton of pitches. He knows that there's no one out there in the bullpen. And he adjusts. Like, he ends up throwing, like, 41 pitches in the last three innings so he mm-hmm. can get to seven innings and help this team win that game because they didn't have relievers. He just adjusts. And I, I don't know. I I think we talk a lot about Zach Wheeler. We probably don't talk enough about Zach Wheeler. I mean, this guy has been – uh He's been really good. He's been as good of an acquisition as the Phillies have had in, in recent history, I think. It
0: he is well, I first of all I agree with you. He's absolutely one of the best pickups they've made of, of any kind, trade, free agent, drafty, uh, you, you name it, he's right up there. And he's on this run now where he hasn't allowed uh, more than 3 runs in a start since April. Yeah, he looks great and he's still getting he's still getting those swings and misses even without the really high powered stuff. Um he he is just doing it a different way. It, it has been interesting to watch. I think his situation is part of what I spend a lot of time thinking about too, uh, for these guys who are on these longer term commitments is how as baseball players, can you set yourself up to age gracefully, right? That's sort of a black box for me. A lot of that is, is involved in conditioning and, and personal health and other routines and some things that are that are happening outside of the baseball field, right? You look at you look at two disparate cases right now. You look at Harper pre-injury and you look at JT and you think, okay, Harper has changed something about the way he's gone to the plate too. He's not drawing as many walks, he's taking more swings, but he's also doing incredible amounts of damage because he's he's seeing good pitches, he's making good choices on those swings and he's getting the barrel to the ball when he's hitting it in. So he doesn't have huge on-base percentages like he's had in the past with 100 walks, et cetera, et cetera, he's still doing a ton of damage. And that's been a bit of a a, sort of a a backward reinvention from what I kind of expected from him. Uh, You sort of think guys with this high discipline will just continue to to be patient and selective and wait for their pitch, and so maybe see a little more passivity as they get older. That hasn't really happened so far. He's still only 29 turning 30, so maybe not the most applicable case. And then you have JT, who plays a completely different position who's got more wear and tear, who has played about the same amount of time, roughly all things being equal. And again, for different reasons, has seen his performance slip a little bit as he gets a little bit older. And all of that coming back to Wheeler makes me wonder if not just within the course of a single game, like you mentioned, where Wheeler goes from um, trying to overpower guys to scaling it back a little bit, and making that adjustment mid-game, but from start to start and season to season, how that macro-level approach has to change, how you have to think about how you're going to get yourself through an entire season, regardless of what position you're playing, in order to be the best version of yourself you can be in that given year. And that's always so fascinating to me because it, baseball players can take different shapes and still be successful not just from game to game because we see a lot of that, but it's that season to season thing where they can almost change their stripes. They can become a different player. I think that's more evident with with Harper than Real Muto in those last examples because he's hitting for a high average without that on-base percentage. And some of those things have been his calling card coming into these, the uh, really coming into this year. And so you look at Zach Wheeler, right? Velocity isn't quite there like you mentioned, the 98 mile an hour pitches, they're not adding up. Maybe he's saving it for the, at the end of the year, that could be, you wouldn't expect him to tell us that because that tips his hand strategically and for other teams to plan around. But you wonder, and you start thinking like, okay, so what does a successful player look like as they continue to age and progress through these contracts? And I take a little bit of heart from this evolution of Wheeler, because if he's a guy who does not need to throw 100 miles an hour, uh, 10 times a start to really be effective, that he can lean more on his secondaries a little bit. I mean, his breaking stuff still looks fantastic. If he can lean a little bit more on his secondaries to get guys out and still rack up those swings and misses. Well, that makes me feel really good about not just the rest of this year, but the two years coming after it too, as he starts getting into his mid thirties as, you know, a fireballing pitcher. It's a bit of a broad tangent, but I I think you pointing out the, the, the fact that the velocity hasn't really been there and might not come back this year, might not come back ever. Doesn't have to be a death knell. It doesn't have to be a red flag for bad things to come.
1: No. And he's a smart pitcher and he doesn't really want people to know that he's smart, I think, but, uh, he, really? he's pretty smart. Yeah. What's that? Oh, because like, I don't know. He doesn't like, you know, he, he doesn't necessarily give the most like, uh, detailed answers, you know, to questions maybe after games, like people will see hmm. him talk about a start, you know, maybe on TV or, or uh, you know, on a clip on online. Like, uh, I, I think he's, he's smart and like, he, uh, I think what makes his stuff so good, uh, still, even if it's not being thrown as hard is that the the fastball still has, you know, plus plus like characteristics, right. Mm -hmm. Really good spin, rate. He's a big guy. He gets really good extension, you know, when he releases the ball. And that's why like 90, you know, I asked him, I was like, I'm like, am I making too big of a deal with this? Like, is, is there really like that big of a difference between pitching, you know, from 95 to 97, instead of 97, to 99, he's like, Oh no, no. Like there's a big difference. Like there's a huge difference. He's mm. like personally, at least for me. Um, but he, he makes it work because, uh, of the way he, you know, he throws his fastball. There's just something about it. Uh, and you're right. I mean, it's a great sign for how this guy could age and it is a vote for, you know, the original strategy behind the deal. You know, if you'll recall, I mean, they, the reason why the Phillies entered the contract they did with Wheeler is because they thought that uh, they were they were signing someone who had his best years ahead of him. They weren't paying for past performance, which you typically right. see, you know, when you sign a late 20s, you know, 30 year old starting pitcher to a five year deal. And, and you know, in the industry, there were a lot of people who thought it was a good idea. There was a lot of people who mocked it, thought that you know this is a guy who hasn't demonstrated anything that would justify a five year, 118 million dollar deal. And I think in the end, the Phillies, uh, you know, even if Wheeler didn't throw another pitch to them, it'd be really disappointing. It would be a huge loss for the team. I think it would still be a, a good contract. Like, I really do. I mean, I think that what he's done so far uh, has justified that deal.
0: And it's interesting, like, how we how we define what we think is a good deal, too, right? Like, let, let, let's gently shift topics a little bit, keeping Wheeler in the mix, because he, he's definitely part of this, but how, how does it click in our minds, especially while the season is going on? I've always found this fascinating. How does it click in our minds to have us decide what we feel like has become a good deal or what is not looking like a good deal? Like how do we, who are not necessarily putting triple slash lines or ERAs or other metrics into spreadsheets and dividing them by, by, you know, Per day's salary and, and really just thinking about it on that level. Obviously, things are, are more complex than that. Don't <laughs> don't get insulted out there. Um, how do we mentally shift those gears into into thinking, oh, I hope this works out to wow, yeah, this really worked out. With Wheeler, it's obvious, right? Five years, 118, 120 million dollars. He's been in the Cy Young conversation outside of a rough start to this year. He's he's basically been. Awesome the entire time, so that's easy. How do we train ourselves to really perceive these deals as being successful or unsuccessful? Here, I'll I'll I'll, I'll reframe that. Right, so we have success on the one side with Zach Wheeler; he looks great. I don't think anybody regrets that deal whatsoever. We're halfway through. I'm with you in that. If yes, something God forbid were to happen and he couldn't finish out the rest of his deal, it would have been a success anyway. It's been two and a half really great years of starting pitching, and that's not the easiest thing to come by. On the other hand, you have things like JT, or on a shorter term deal, you have things like Didi, where performance hasn't really measured up. But does that necessarily invalidate the process that went into some of these things? Because you mentioned the process with Wheeler, he didn't necessarily have this sort of performance that he's had as his track record, where you could say, yes, we are justifying this on recent performance. We think he's going to replicate what he's done. And that's why we're giving him this term and this amount of money.
1: Well, let's start with DD. Let's go back. Yeah. Like, I think that, I think where, yes, you have to, what you have to go back to is you have to go back to the, the circumstances in which the player was acquired. Uh-huh. And let's remember, like when DD was out there, uh, in the offseason between 2020 and 2021 uh, he had already had a year with the Phillies. You know, mm-hmm. there's a couple other shortstops in his sort of caliber who signed one year deals. The Phillies did not have to sign Didi Gregorius to a two year deal. And they did. And uh, I, I think they're paying for that. I really do. And like, was it a, was it a good deal or bad deal? Like I think at the time you remember we, you know, I remember that most of the analysis surrounded around it was like, they kind of had to do it. There wasn't really any other option. They kind of had to run it back. It was kind of the, the, the thing at the time.
0: It felt that but,
1: way. But they didn't have to do two years. And I think that was part of the nuance of the of the analysis was that, yeah, 2021 makes sense to bring him back. He, he was good for them in the short pandemic season. Absent any better option, which they didn't really have, let's do it. But that second year, you're like, eh, I don't know about that. And here we are halfway through that second year. And I don't know about that yeah yeah it's
0: it's interesting because I think hindsight informs a lot of what we what we no perceive question. about about some of these pickups right and it, it's human nature because we we try to live in the moment with some of these sports teams and then we see what they're doing right now and then think back to how they got to this point and let it color the situation a little bit and that's why I, I mean I do that too I'm guilty of that I, I'm right there with you in thinking and remembering, trying to remember, at least I'm, I'm sure I've got receipts out there on social media somewhere, um, where, where I was like, okay, yeah, that's fine. Two years is interesting. And then I try and work it through. I'm like, all right, well, Bryson Stott is still a little ways away. Maybe this is a gap, you know, maybe this carries them into and blah, 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 blah. And I'm sure I thought myself in circles trying to justify it. And now we get to this point and it's like, well, all right there wasn't a whole lot of that that held water. You know, like you said, the last couple of years, last couple of off seasons, there have been uh, options out there at shortstop. Uh, Stop moved pretty quickly through the minor leagues, although I guess that couldn't necessarily be counted on. And you can't really plan a major league roster around uh, a recent draft pick like that, even if he was a college bat. Uh, I, I, I just wish the, I wish the process had a little bit more of a consistent thread to it, where you can look back at some of these moves and more easily understand why they were made, and really buy into the justification for it. I think that's where I get lost a little bit sometimes, um, even with moves that make sense at the time and then don't pan out. You know, the DD move I think is a little bit—it's a little bit mystifying to me. Not totally because I was on board with bringing him back uh, a couple of seasons ago, and I, I liked him coming back. I'm sad it hasn't worked out. I, I wish it had been a little bit better. But I look at Didi and I, and I wonder, like, why were the Phillies the outlier in this situation? Why were they the ones who bucked the trend and gave that second year when there were other options, when they could have played it uh, uh, a little bit safer, I guess, in this case? Was it just a case of... Well, I'm not going to put words in, in, in anybody's mouth, actually. I'm not even going to put a theory out there. Why why do we think they chose to to buck the market trends in that particular year and, and and go outside of what everybody else seemed to be doing at that time? And why has it backfired so quickly?
1: I've I've asked people this and like when you're talking about like you wish you could know more about, you know, why certain deals are made, like I, that's like one of my favorite parts of my job is like trying to ask, you know, when a deal goes down, a trade or a signing or uh Anything you're like, well, well, why? Like, what is the thinking behind it? Even if you don't agree with it, mm-hmm. even if you think it's ridiculous, even you know whatever. Like, you sure. want to know, like, you want to understand why things are happening, and, and that that's like my my job is like try to explain that, and then like you, the fans, like can decide. Well, I don't, I don't like this thinking, and you <laughs> know, in recent years, like that's Boy, become do harder. We ever. It's become harder for front offices, or or not, maybe not harder, but. Um, you know, uh, less, you know, it, it just doesn't happen as much. They don't, they don't, aren't willing as willing enough to explain why they do things or huh. the explanation is too, uh, rooted in, you know, something that is a proprietary, uh, you know, measurement you're like, well, I, you know, <laughs> so it's, yeah, it's yeah. been frustrating to like try to understand in the case of DD, I've heard a lot of different things as to why that second year was given. I've heard, uh, to make the deferred money work, they needed to make it two years because a lot of the money is deferred, a a big chunk of the money is deferred, uh, in that contract. Uh, I've heard that, you know, Didi's camp was, was set on a three-year deal and that a one year deal was, you know, too insulting to him and the affiliates didn't want to be insulting and, you know, settled it two years for a player who gave them a, a really good 2020, which, you know, he only got paid, I guess, what a fraction of what he was supposed to get paid. Something right? prorated. Yeah. yeah, Right. But everybody, you know, that was everybody. So right. I, I've, <laughs> I've heard a lot of different things. I've heard that they had an agreement with another shortstop and that oh. a one year deal and that it fell through and that, you know, they were kind of caught with their legs, you know, their pants down and, uh, you know, kind of just had to, had to, had to go with, you know, the offer that they had with Didi, And so I have heard a lot of different things. Um, interesting. but, uh, uh, I, I, don't think the second year was necessary, even, even in hearing all the things that I've heard. And I think, uh, if they were to go back and do it again, uh, they, they probably would not have given him a second year.
0: Well, yeah, I, I think that's, you know, <laughs> even with, even without the benefit of hindsight, I, I, I think that's obvious too. I, the interesting thing in all of that, I mean, I, I you know, it, it's news to me that they had a, a an agreement with another shortstop fall through, and I I think that probably perked a lot of ears up. But um, to have to have the the reaction to that plan falling through be to almost like I don't want to say desperation, but they maybe <laughs> they maybe overcorrected a little bit with that plan falling through to go out and and do. You know, not just bucking the trend of the market with the two years here, but you mentioned the deferred salary, and that's a great point, too. The the Phillies hadn't really treaded in those waters until recently. You know, their division mates, the the Nationals, are are infamous for doing that at this point. But the Phillies had sort of stayed out of the deferred salary game. They'd been paying everything up front and, you know, working through these deals. So they added another wrinkle into this. the more I think about it, the stranger it seems. Because,
1: well, because a lot of reasons. I'm making <laughs> you really think here. This.
0: You know, like it. Hmm. So,
1: <sighs> it was a bad contract. Like I think I can. We can say that now, and it's and it's hindsight. Yeah. But I think at the time, I'm telling you, like if you go back and read, I I rem, I, I don't know. I mean, I think a lot of people were with this, but I mean, I remember writing that. Uh, you know, makes sense in the immediate. And that second year, like, you kind of got to wonder, and I remember writing that, you wonder if that second year is spent not at fully at shortstop, because Stott was coming and because uh-huh. Dee's range, you know, has always been something that evaluators have dinged him for. Um, I think that they thought, or I think that I thought that Dee would have been playing maybe a different position this season. Uh, which again doesn't justify the contract either, because you're paying him, you know, to be a sh- you know paying him shortstop money essentially. Uh, it the contract was not the second year was never rooted in logic, I don't think. And asking them to explain it has always been like kind of a runaround. It was also like, you know, he talked to people. You, you know, he talked to people around Dombrowski. That first off season was uh, interesting. You know, he didn't trade he only made like I think he made one trade, right? Two trades. He traded for Coonrod and Alvarado, pretty, right? Pretty but he only quiet. traded you know, very small pieces he traded. And in fact, <laughs> there's evaluators who are like, Why did they trade this guy? They traded for Coonrod. And I'm forgetting his name now. He was a he was a Brian Barber draft pick in the short draft from University of South Florida and I cannot remember his name now, uh, for the life of me. But uh he actually is like kind of a prospect for the Giants now. I think he's hurt this year. Uh, he's a pitcher, big guy. Carson Ragsdale. Carson Ragsdale. Uh, he, had a, he had a really good year last year in the minors and A-ball, but I think he's been hurt this year anyway. People were like, why did they trade this guy? And I think it speaks more to, like, Dombrowski really didn't know what, uh, what the situation was. Like, he was trying to get evaluations from people that he realized later that he could not trust. Mm. And he was trying to figure out who he could trust Uh, both their evaluations, uh, both as executives, you know, I think there was a lot of, uh, you know, there was, there were a lot of things that probably would have that shouldn't have happened that off season that did. And uh, I think part of it was Dombrowski was hired pretty late. They didn't know what the budget was going to be until later that off season. If you'll recall, Uh, it was a weird situation that whole off season. And uh I think the DD thing probably uh, was a result of that unusual circumstance. All
0: right. And let's, let's keep going with the DD thing for a second, because you, you mentioned the, the other position thing, which came up and then disappeared and has never manifested in a regular season game. What What is the story with DD and playing other positions? Because it sure seems like he might be able to be a little bit better at second base occasionally. like I I never really bought into the thought that he was going to be a third baseman. I just don't see the arm from him, um, especially not now. But why with all of the, the mixing and matching and, and everything that's been going on in the infield, even when Didi was healthy as a part of that, how has he been the one to always stay at the same position while everybody else moves around him?
1: Trying to keep him happy.
0: Why so are they sweating. going so far out of their way in this one case? <laughs> Why, because, why, what makes Didi the exception here? Like, I, I get that he was a nice player when they brought him in, but as we're
1: talking through this, there are so many things that they did differently <laughs> for this one guy. Like, why, why? Well, I mean, it's a good question because right now, what is their best defensive infield? Is it Stodd at short and Didi uh, at second? Uh, honestly, probably, probably, right? And I'm not real high on like Bryson Stodd as an everyday shortstop, but. I'm probably taking him over DD right now, shortstop.
0: He's he's very athletic. I mean, he that one play up the middle last week where he he pirouetted and threw from shallow center field was was very impressive. You don't expect that every day, but like he's he's shown to be competent for sure. I think he
1: plays a great second base. I, mm. I mean that, that should be obvious because like he's you know he's come up as a shortstop and there's yeah. always been questions about other positions. He I think Bryson stop plays a terrific second base. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Uh yeah, I mean, look, like <laughs> part of roster management and like lineup management and like in game and day by day decisions, a lot of it is based in numbers and logic. A lot of it isn't. A lot of it is based on keeping your people happy, and yeah, like yeah. that is a, like a variable that should not be ignored. Like you do need For to sure. keep people happy. Like that 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 is important. And Didi is a guy who wants to play shortstop every day, and. <laughs> that's what he signed for. That's like what he's been his career. You know, he said in the spring, uh, he's like, if I'm going to be on the bench and like, I don't really, he's like, essentially was like, if I'm going to be on the bench, like I don't want to be here. So (laughs) it's like, Uh, I, 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 you know, I don't know. And now like you look at him, he's got a knee thing again, you know, he sat for a month, uh, you know, Came back. Still hasn't hit home run. Hasn't really hit for power. His whole game is is you know all of his value is is uh, as a you know passable shortstop who hits for power. Yeah, and he's not hitting for power. He's barely been a passable shortstop. Uh, he, you know, again though, like we're we're probably being unfair because he has been hardly their worst everyday player. I mean, like they might have the yeah. worst. They have one of the worst everyday players in baseball if you use wars as evaluation for offense and defense in right field and Nick yeah, the third baseman, Alec Boehm, has not been very good. He's no. among one of the worst everyday players in baseball. So DD is just, I guess, like, I don't know, maybe we're, maybe we're not being fair, but yeah, maybe he, he hasn't been on the field and when he's been on the field, uh it, it hasn't been productive enough. And so you know, I think it raises a few questions it's like, OK, if this is if this knee thing now is back and it's now being cited as a reason for why he hasn't hit for power, it's like and and it might not go away. It didn't go away after a month's rest. He you know he didn't play for a month. Uh, now he has this injection uh, lubricant to try to help, you know, soften, you know, kind of break up some of the pain in there. And I love it's not going to go away. Way. The lubricant, lubricant. was lubricant. it WD. Somebody asked me, was it, the, are they shooting <laughs> WD 40 into DD's left knee? And I was lubricant. like, I don't know. Uh, but if this is the guy that we're going to see for the rest of the year, it's like, eh, like, I don't know. Like, should he be getting every day at bats?
0: No, no, of course not. And I don't know if he finishes the year on the roster, especially if. And this will be a nice little segue into something a little more positive. Guys like Matt Vierling can make the infield work. Hey, how about this guy, huh? Not only is he hitting a little bit more, especially over the last month, he's showing his inner Ben Zobrist for us, and he's playing second and third base on occasion. But he's doing it, and he hasn't looked awful. <laughs> Where'd this come from?
1: I did I, he do like, this in the
0: minors? Did he play not in the minors? not
1: really? He played a little third base in college. He played third base for Notre okay. Dame one year, um, okay, because they they needed it. He also pitched another Notre Dame because they needed it. Essentially, right. like, that you know, I remember. He, yeah, yeah. He did a lot of things. Just whenever they, he would, he's willing to do anything. Just about, and that, that there's value in that. And I don't know. Like I look at Matt Vierling and like I don't, I don't think Matt Vierling is an everyday player. Like mm. I've, I've written that. I, I think that's my, the evaluation of a lot of teams. But right now, like I think Matt Vierling should be playing every day. I, I don't see a better option. Like. And because of his versatility, he can play every day at different spots. Like, I think you can find a way to get him in the lineup. I don't care if there's a righty on the mound. Like, I, I want to see it. I kind of want to see it. I do too. And I, I, I understand the limitations. Uh, I don't know that he's, you know, really a center fielder. We, we've seen him, you know, make some questionable reads and yeah. decisions in center field. Probably yeah. not a center fielder. But the fact that he can now play all three outfield positions, he can play first, he can play third, Second, uh, eh, I don't know. But, yeah. like, are you telling me that, like, he's a worse defensive third baseman, Alec Boehm? Maybe, but I don't know that it's by much. And I also wonder, like, Matt Vierling against a righty or Odubel slash Moniak against a, a righty. Like, what do you want right now? And I, I think I want Matt Vierling <laughs> against a righty.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's another one of those balancing well, I guess in Moniac's case, it's not really even much about development anymore because they're kind of out on him anyway. But it's that interesting, like, what's the best for right now and what's the best for right now plus the future. But uh, I i have always had this weird attachment to Matt Verland. I know. I, I, remember I, you, don't, I remember
1: you asking me about man, him like years look, ago. Yeah.
0: I, I don't know how it started. I just remember when they drafted him. I'm like, oh, that seems interesting. He was a fifth round pick. You know, like not even a really high up there guy. Oh, that's kind of up there but not, not one of the guys you immediately get into your organization and you're like, oh, that's somebody to be excited about or that's a, you know, maybe it's a high-risk, unfinished product, but you could have a lot of reward pay off with the right development. No, he was, he was a college bat in the fifth round, and the, I was just like, oh, this guy seems interesting. And I, to, to this day, still cannot understand the genesis of all of that. But to see him turn into this, this utility player, basically out of nowhere, I... I don't think it was on anybody's radar that this was a guy who was going to make appearances at second base and third base. No, no, not
1: even even his radar. (laughs) No,
0: and I mean, mostly that's because, you know, you don't get that far into disaster planning from the outside where you think about your fifth or sixth outfielder taking infield reps on a somewhat regular basis. But anyway, he's... His season numbers are a little bit lower because he
1: got off to a, a, a bad terrible start. Terrible start. And you but, can't – it doesn't work that way. You don't just erase the 0 oh, for 15 to no, start. But no. if you do, it's interesting. He is interesting. He is. He
0: is. And th- the Phillies owe it to themselves to see what's there when things like this happen because I think they've robbed themselves of that opportunity or falsely understood not, – not understood, falsely sensed when one of those opportunities might be coming. They they read the signs wrong with Kingery in, in trying to see what they had, but then they've also run into times where, and this was especially true in, in the Girardi years, where uh, guys didn't necessarily get full run of play, where they were, you know, started for a game and then sat for two games. And so it's been well-documented at this point. But with Veerling, I agree with you that I don't see a future starter. I don't think this is somebody who, like, the Cardinals produce on a yearly basis. Who's going to come up and be, uh, you know, a five start a week guy who puts up 110 OPS plus for five years. And then they manage to trade him for like some, you know, <laughs> stud pitcher that takes them into a deep playoff run because that's just what the Cardinals do. But, <laughs> but it, right now, yes, he's, he's helping. He's one of those guys who is being a positive force, a positive contributor and doing it in different spots on the field. And yes, the platoon splits are not good, but. The splits are not great for some of the alternatives. Yeah, either. this is you less. Know? This
1: is less. It's 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 as much about mad viewing as it is like situation at multiple positions on the field right now. Yes, yes.
0: And honestly, just ride it while you've got it. You know, to see this to the end. I understand that sometimes some of these guys get a little overexposed. We've seen it with Ronald Torres. We've seen it with Johan Camargo a bit this year.
1: And that you could know, very well happen with Matt. Yes. Yes, it could. But the difference here,
0: and, and I, I think this is where we agree. The difference here is that this seems like a guy who's not just like this mercenary import who you're just, you know, throwing out there every day because you, you've added him and he's a veteran and you're maybe doing a little of what we were talking about, trying to appease him and, and keep him regular that way. This is a guy who you've drafted, who you've brought through your system who has um, made it to the major leagues as a farm-to-table guy, and now he's doing positive things for a team that has playoff aspirations. You keep riding that for as long as you're able, especially while the roster is just a mess. The roster's a mess. (laughs) Capital M mess. And if you have a guy who you can plug into different positions and who's hit pretty well recently, recency bias, yeah, sure, He's hit pretty well and had some big hits. You know, I'll always remember that home run
1: off Josh Hader. Like, you owe it to yourself to see how far this could go. Kind of overnight, the Phillies have sort of turned into, like, Gabe's Giants. Like, they're running platoons right now, Paul, or, or could be running platoons at, like, a lot of spots. So I many mean, So many they're, they're, like, Derek Hall and Yairo Munoz and Matt Vierling are very much uh, platoon starters right now. Like mm-hmm. they, they are playing games against certain pitchers. Uh, and yeah, I mean, the, the, the roster is messy. The roster is really messy right now. And I do think though, they have been trying to get the most out of it. I give them credit for yeah, agree. trying different things, like pulling the hall lever when they did. I don't know yes. that it'll work, but it's, it's something. But I think that Veerling, I, I think they should take it a step further with Veerling, And and I, I think that, you know, he should see some regular time at third and center, maybe in right on the days where uh, Castellanos is DHing. I I just think it, I, I think it's a decent shot to see.
0: No, it absolutely is. And you never know, like, what what's the harm, I guess, is is the phrase that comes to mind. The harm is that he could crater terribly. We've seen this before. It's, so I, it's sort of a rhetorical question to ask that. But also, <laughs> What is the, what is the harm? Like, you know, let's let's have a little fun with this. Like this this team was supposed to be fun for, for different reasons than what we've seen. And they've been uh, more frustrating on, on balance in the areas that we expected to be a little bit more consistently fun. But now we have a chance to, on a lesser scale, deploy a guy who's really just objectively fun who seems like he has fun playing the game. He's not like a grouch or, or some, you know, weird abrasive character where you're, you're just, you're like, "Eh, do I really want to see this person succeed? You have a guy who has said he's willing to take infield reps and has so far made it work in a game what did he he had five assists in his first game at second base when they just plugged him in. Yeah, the and the third was. base was
1: a good look until that one throw. Yeah, yeah. So the arm is, and is he probably shouldn't have been. Yeah, he shouldn't have been. Like he definitely shouldn't be playing the infield like in the seventh inning of a of a game. No, we're winning. Yeah, but that, but that's that's the thing. That's right. right. If we yeah.
0: have all of these movable pieces and we think about platoons, we can also think about defensive replacements a little bit more. Yes, and and not just in the outfield. I, I think defensively, the outfield has seen more of that than the infield. But you have guys on the roster now, you know, Yari Munoz being whatever he is, is, is a more capable infielder, right? And You can just plug him in there in the late innings if yes. you start beer league. Yes. Like the, the team is weird. The roster is a mess. Do not get it twisted. This is, this is not like, this is not the plan. This is not necessarily how you should build a contenting Major League Baseball team. But so far, they've been able to hang in and make it work. Yes. So just keep seeing where it gets you. You know, yeah. I, 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 I remarked on this sort of offhandedly when Derek Hall came up, and that's, that struck me as such an extremely aggressive move for the Phillies that I had known over the last few years. 100%. I don't think that this organization, that this team would have been like, you know what? We lost our best player. Let's call up the platoon masher.
1: And put him, <laughs> and put know? him right, and not just call him up, but put him right in the
0: put middle. Put him of the line. right in there, yeah. batting cleanup, DH. Yeah, you know he goes. I think over four in his debut, but then comes right back and and smacks a dinger. It's like you know, it's working. They're being a little bit weird, very weird for them, but a little bit weird relative to the league, and it's working. So, so let's just keep trying it with Veerling. Like, why not? Well, and that's that can, that's the point I'm at right now, Matt. Like I know I'm I'm losing
1: a little bit of logic here. But I just think, why not? Let's come back to the eighty-one game mark, right? Yeah, the Phillies have gotten halfway through the season, Paul, and they are eighth in the NL and runs allowed, like mm. with one of the worst defenses in the yeah. game, like yeah. and and a bullpen that we weren't sure about, and a rotation at you know outside of the tops. You guys hasn't been that good. It, no. I mean, their run no. prevention, like talk, just harping on this idea of being weird. I mean, like where did this come from? Like, I don't really understand it. Um, Like it does speak to the, the, you know, there are a lot of bad teams in the national league. I think we know that, but they've been like, okay. At preventing runs. Like they've been almost right in the middle of the pack. And I don't think that that's something we anticipated. Uh, It's been a weird 81 games. And I have no idea what's going to happen in the next 81 games, but I I think it's going to be kind of interesting.
0: Well, that feels like as good a place as any to leave it. The Phillies finish up their home homestand uh, with, mercifully, a couple more games against the Nationals this week before heading back out on the road. They're still in a bit of a tough spot with, you know, again, the roster being a bit of a mess. And it's only going to be more of a mess as we get closer and closer to that Toronto series. And boy... I, that, that's
1: I will be talking time. to our next podcast. I Oof. will be still in St. Louis because the Phillies are playing a ridiculous wraparound Rude wraparound uh, yeah. series with two day games and a night game on Monday. Uh, The next podcast, Paul, it'll be, it'll be fun. We, we, it's going to be something
0: look everybody out there. Brace yourselves down. We got to do it just from a baseball perspective. We, we got to talk about the Toronto series and boy, (laughs) from the sound of it, there's going to be a lot to talk about, but we'll leave that for then. That'll wrap it up for this week. Uh, for the athletic Philadelphia's Matt Gelb. I am Paul Boyer. Hope everybody's feeling a little better out there. Hope you had a chance to, uh, enjoy your holiday weekend. Matt, well, I guess we'll see everybody out there, huh?
1: See ya.